Welcome to the Roots of American Music podcast. My name is Clint Holly, and I will be your host today. This is episode seven of season three, which has been called the Akron Heritage Music Project. It was funded by the Knight Foundation and the GAR Foundation. This episode will be the final episode in the Akron Heritage Music Project, which has been a great experience for the last year. We've explored topics like the jazz scene in Akron. We've explored the suffragette movement with Sojourner Truth speech in Akron. A lot of great information. So if this is your first time listening to this podcast, please go back and listen to the other six episodes because they all have great stories and great music behind them. Today we explore the idea of the southern migration of people from states like Kentucky and West Virginia to Akron, Ohio to come work in the rubber factories. They brought their culture, they brought food, most of all, they brought music with them. So today we're going to talk to long-term historian and activist Dave Lieberth about that concept of people coming from somewhere else to Akron to start their lives over again in search of a better way. Our musical guest today is Corey Grinder and the Playboy Scouts playing some very traditionally styled country music, which is a perfect fit for the people from the South bringing their culture to Akron, Ohio. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Dave Lieberth and find out more about him and then talk about how these people came to Akron and brought their culture with them. My name is Dave Lieberth. I've uh, been a civic activist in Akron for over 40 years. I had a 10-year career in broadcasting in Akron at WHLO News Radio and practiced law for 25 years in the city. During that time, I was involved in starting and being part of multiple organizations, uh, uh, many of which were devoted to studying the history of the city and uh, the community. I'm a historian. I've been writing history for 40 years in various ways, books, magazine articles, doing speeches on on the city, and uh, studying uh, the movements that made Akron the city that it is today. And you said that your interest in history started pretty young. Tell me a little bit about that. I was a junior in high school when I read Carl Grismer's History of Akron and Summit County. It was a book that was published in 1950, but a comprehensive history of the community that really began in the prehistory era of our natural history. The fact that we sit atop of one of the great watershed divides in North America and uh, the reason why we are the home of the portage that Native Americans used for 10,000 years to cross the land between the Cuyahoga River and the Tuscarawas River, and the reason why Simon Perkins, uh, when he bought the land here, when he was a young surveyor, realized that the Ohio and Erie Canal would have to cross this watershed divide and uh, wanted it to cross through his land. So he strategically located parcels that he would own that the canal would be forced to go through. That really contributed to the early development of the city when it was founded in 1825. What about that book sparked your imagination enough to make this kind of a lifelong pursuit? Carl Grismer had a unique writing style that not only made history composed of facts and dates and things that are by and large irrelevant to most people, but really stories of individuals, stories of men and women who really created the community through their pursuits in education, in industry, in agriculture, and uh, in the community issues. So one of the you know big topics we're going to talk about, obviously, is the, the rubber industry. When did that start to develop in Akron? Well, if you look around the community, you're not going to see any rubber trees here. There's no good reason why Akron should have been the home of four of the largest rubber companies in the world for about 100 years. But the principal reason was that in 1870, a New York physician named Benjamin Franklin Goodrich uh, acquired an interest in a rubber company in New York uh, City. He then moved that company to Melrose, New York, where it also wasn't going to be successful. He had gone to Western Reserve University for his medical degree, and he was aware of Northeast Ohio. And so in traveling to the area, he wondered if if he located the first rubber company west of the Allegheny Mountains somewhere in this area, whether or not it would not be successful. 
At that time, rubber companies made, by and large, rubber fire hose and some belting, and that was their principal products. But Dr. Goodrich was looking for investors. And so, just like today, 150 years later, it's all about capital. It's about investments. And 15 men stepped up uh, who were already successful industrialists in the city, and they staked Dr. Goodrich in his business. And when he was able to assemble what was then $15,000, roughly half a million dollars in today's money, he decided to locate his company, uh, eponymously named the B.F. Goodrich Company, and he started that company in 1870, 150 years ago last year. It was successful, and uh, not without its ups and downs, but uh, the family of, of Akron's founder, the Perkins family, took a strong interest in it, not only invested in it, but uh, the grandson of Akron's founder became the second president of the B.F. Goodrich Company. By making it a success, when we underwent a panic, or today what we would call a depression in 1895, there were other businesses that were foundering, and one was uh, the boxboard business and cereal business. F.A. Cyberling who at that time uh, owned a building and nothing more, decided he would start a rubber company. And so in 1899, he began the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. Again, it was successful. Harvey Firestone came up from Columbiana County. He was a super salesman. And uh, he was selling tires, being produced by other rubber companies. And in 1905, he built his factory here. So by the mid-20th century, Akron was the home of five Fortune 500 companies at a time when Cleveland had one, Columbus had none, right. Cincinnati had Procter & Gamble, Akron was the home of Goodyear, Goodrich, Firestone, General Tire and Rubber Company, and the Roadway Express Company. Now, you mentioned immigrants from Europe. Was that a major part of their workforce, say, prior to 1900? or It was a small part of the workforce. Okay. Unlike other industrial cities in the Midwest, Chicago, Detroit even, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Akron did not have a great immigration from the Eastern European countries. It okay. had some. We had a substantial German population in Akron during the 19th century. They came here to work in the cereal industry, and we had a substantial Irish population that came to work at first along the Ohio and Erie Canal by, by building it and digging it. We had an Italian population that had arrived in Akron and centered on North Hill. But unlike those other cities that I mentioned, Akron's largest immigrant population was really from the South, from the countries that are still today known as Appalachia. Did the companies actively send people to recruit workers, or was it just part of the general migration of people from the South to the North looking for jobs in general? Well, both things are true, depending on what years you're talking about, because there was this great migration from the South. I've seen numbers that rate anywhere between 25 million and 100 million people, Southerners, black and white, who moved from the South and from land that had gone barren, from coal mines that had gone empty, from oil fields that had gone dry. And they came to the North looking for jobs. Well, the one thing Akron had was jobs. But there was this slow migration at the beginning part of the 20th century, but really accelerated between the years of 1910 and 1920. Akron tripled in size in 10 years. It wow. was the fastest growing city in the United States. It grew from 70,000 people roughly in 1910 to roughly 210,000 people in 1920. Now, a large part of that was due to the First World War. The rubber companies in Akron and other factories, and we had, we had 250 manufacturing companies here in the year 1920, doing different things, all kinds of different manufacturers of all kinds, not just rubber, but other things as well. And so we turned out materiel for World War I 24 hours a day. The factories ran all the time, and the rubber companies needing men uh, to run these machines and to build these tires for jeeps and treads on tanks and for other things that rubber was used for, they sent recruiters to the South. 
The principal state that drew most of the immigrants to Akron was West Virginia. Okay. But we also had migration from Kentucky and mm. Tennessee, African-American migration from Alabama and Mississippi. And so anybody who wanted a job from 1910 to 1920 could find a job in Akron. They might not be able to find a place to live or to sleep, but they could find a job here. So how did the budding automotive industry help the rubber companies? The first thing that happened was that they got into the bicycle craze at the end of the 19th century. Okay. So by making bicycle tires, they already were in the tire making business. And it was to some extent, the relationship between Harvey Firestone and Henry Ford, a personal relationship that had begun earlier when he was starting to sell tires. But when Firestone received its first order from the Ford Motor Company, that really spurred the tire-making business in, in the city. And after that, with the advent of World War I, uh, things grew very, very quickly. Was the proximity to Detroit and Cleveland and other places that were involved in the auto industry, you think pretty relevant to the tires being produced here? Or was that just irrelevant because the rubber companies were already located here? Well, because transportation was so poor in those days, mm -hmm. the fact that there was proximity did make a difference. Right. They were able to move tires from Akron to Detroit and the large plants that the new automobile industries uh, were, were making there, General Motors and Ford and Chrysler, and that did have an impact on Akron's growth. They, the expression was is that they were so close that when uh, Detroit sneezed, Akron caught cold. <laughs> so if you could describe maybe a little bit about what is the day in the life of a guy or woman that's working in one of the tire factories, what are some of the jobs that they did in these factories? That really depended on who you were. Right. Because if you were... A skilled, educated person from the East Coast, for example, and you had come to Akron to find your way in this new industry, chances are you would have been a middle manager, a factory superintendent, you would have had a home in West Akron, you would have had domestic help, you would have had some of the first automobiles that were produced for your personal uh, cars, and the, the results of that are the wonderful homes that we see today. If you were an uh, immigrant from uh, Europe, chances are you were also a craftsman, meaning an electrician or a plumber, or you might have had some you know, mechanical engineering experience, and you would have been put to work in the company in some of the better-paying jobs as engineers or as mechanics. If you were African-American, you were in the pit. It was the toxic, dirtiest, hottest place in the rubber industry, and you were paired barely dollars a day for the worst jobs. But the tire industry, when it started, needed brawn more than brains. And so what they had available were jobs for every strapping young man who wanted a job. Right. So thousands of men were hired to do the very difficult work of actually physically making a tire, which required labor and muscles. Let's take a break from this great story right now and listen to some music. Our musical guest for this episode is Corey Grinder and the Playboy Scouts. Um, Corey Grinder has been kicking around the Cleveland music scene for, oh, I don't know, almost uh, uh, half a decade at this point, if not even a little bit longer. He plays a style of music that's a mix of uh, honky-tonk music, western swing, Bakersfield sound, country music, real traditional kind of stuff. They have fiddles and uh, pedal steel guitar which really kind of round out that particular sound. They joined us at Akron Recording Company for a live stream, which was broadcast from the Roots of American Music Facebook page. And these performances are saved on the Facebook page, so if you like the music that you hear, please go watch the entire performance on the Facebook page and all the performances for the previous podcasts in this episode also. The first song that I've selected from their performance is a newer one called Take Me. Take me 
Kevin had told me that you had an anecdote about how people would split shifts at a factory and share their quarters because there wasn't really places for people to live. Akron wasn't prepared for the vast in-migration of all of these men, primarily, and the men came first. They would later send for perhaps a wife or a fiancé or perhaps other members of the family. But these young single men from Appalachia came to Akron, and when they got off the train or possibly even a bus, they immediately looked for a place to lay their head. And, and there weren't any places. Now, the people in Akron were resourceful at the time, so they turned just about every piece of shelter that there was into some kind of sleeping quarters. <laughs> if you had a hen house, you might shove all the chickens in one side of the hen house <laughs> and rent out the other half to a guy who would pay you rent for half of a hen house. There were other buildings that went up very quickly, shanties and shacks. And then there were landladies who had a house and they had bedrooms and they had beds and they would turn the beds three times a day. Wow. So there would be eight hours in the sheets, and then if you weren't done sleeping, the next guy would drag you out of the sheets <laughs> and would slip into the sheets. So right. the sheets were never cold, and they were never clean. Clean. <laughs> so basically, they were running 24 hours a day, seven days a week down here yeah, at that time. There was one, one story that uh, a man in the rubber shop was making about uh, $15 a, a week uh, working on a machine, but uh, his wife was making 125 a week renting out rooms wow. in, in, their, in their house. So wow. uh, it was, it was uh, all upside down. That was a problem that the rubber companies themselves tried to address during World War I uh, because both F.A. Cyberling, the founder of Goodyear, and Harvey Firestone, the founder of Firestone, were concerned that not so much that there wasn't housing for their factory men, because at that time, labor was a commodity. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody quit their job, you know, the next guy who came along got the job. Right. But they were concerned that talent was disappearing. That's not an issue that we're unfamiliar with today. Mm -hmm. So they needed to build good housing to try to keep the men and their families here. Mm -hmm. So F.A. Cyberling built Goodyear Heights, which is a, a National Register neighborhood in the east side of Akron. And Harvey Firestone built Firestone Park on the south side of Akron. And these were homes that uh, men could buy with a payment of about $25 a month. And uh, the cost of the house might end up uh, totaling $3,500, but they would have the house paid for in uh, about 10 or 12 years. Okay. And some of those houses, in fact, many of those houses are still occupied today by people who have continued to remodel them and improve them and uh, rehabilitate them. Now you mentioned those two neighborhoods and those would have been people that were more, what you would call those middle class, middle manager kind yeah. of people. Now yeah. where did the people that didn't have a lot of money, what areas of Akron were they residing in? The first African-American neighborhood that we had was along Ridge Street, not far from the studio that we're recording in today on Furnace Street. And they located in, as was typical of most American industrial cities at the time, black families located in the worst sections of town, the parts on the edge of the city where white people didn't want to live very often. So our first black neighborhoods in Akron were in where we're sort of sitting now, here on Furnace Street, Ridge Street, uh, on the north side of downtown Akron. Poor whites began to populate places like Kenmore and Ellet, strong Akron neighborhoods today, but again, they, uh, people lived communally. It wasn't unusual for one house to host uh, two or three generations of a family. For example, with sisters and brothers, even grown sisters and brothers who were married and had spouses living in the same house. So Akron had a huge housing shortage right up until the Second World War. 
And there wasn't an effort to begin to repair that until after the Second World War. Now, what other elements of the Appalachian culture arrived in Akron that still maybe are kind of lingering around today? Well, the people who came from the Southland were kind of kin, if you will, in terms of the speech patterns that they used, in terms of their religious beliefs, in terms of the kind of recreation uh, that they sought out. The reason why West Virginia was such a popular location for people to come from was that it was still close to home. So there were no jobs in those hills very often, but they could come to Akron on Route 21. It was said that the three R's taught in West Virginia classrooms were reading, writing, and Route 21, but they could get home at a a time when they had some time off or took time off. And so people from West Virginia were kin, if you will, to people from Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi. And so they shared a lot of the same values. One of the values that was long-lasting was their religious beliefs. By and large, these were people who were formed in the Baptist religion. Some of them were Pentecostal in nature. But one man started the movement here, again, not far from where we are sitting today on Furnace Street, because the Reverend Bill Denton started the Furnace Street Mission in the early part of the 20th century, when Furnace Street was a place where there were brothels, bars of ill repute, gambling dens, crime, and he parked himself right in the middle of that and became an evangelist to what he felt were the downtrodden elements of uh, Akron society. But he started a kind of Pentecostal style of religion that was all his own. But the importance of it is, is that others followed him. So while Bill Denton started that Furnace Street mission, he inspired people like Carl Burnham, who eventually would found the chapel, which today is still one of the largest Protestant congregations in the city. He inspired people like Rex Humbard, who founded the Cathedral of Tomorrow. He Mm -hmm. was a tent preacher, and he became one of the most recognized television personalities in the world. I remember that in the 1970s, Rex Humbard had more television viewers than Johnny Carson did at night. Wow. So he was worldwide in his evangelism. The other person who was best known was a pastor by the name of Dallas Billington, who founded Akron's Baptist Temple. It grew and grew until he claimed the largest Bible class in the United States. He built a sanctuary that had 4,000 seats in it, and it overflowed very often on Sunday mornings. The remnant of that that has persisted right up until a couple of weeks ago was uh, the cathedral uh, that was started by the Reverend Ernest Angeline. Mm-hmm. And so all of those men came out of this same tradition that began with Reverend Bill Denton in his Furnace Street mission. So Akron via Appalachia is almost the birth of televangelism. I think we could say that. And I think if we looked at the history of televangelism, we'd find that they all had roots in some of those men that I I just named. Now let's talk about music a little bit, since this is Roots of American Music. What was uh, the music that these people brought from Appalachia? Grinnin and Peckin. Right. And so it was the, the music of the hills that they listened to and performed. We don't have a great canon of what that music was. And even though I've studied a lot of Akron history, I've not encountered any kind of canon of what we would today would call country music, I guess. Right. Um, uh, bluegrass music. I, uh, and there are distinctions between country and bluegrass, mm-hmm. of course. But I haven't found anything, anybody who's done a really good study of, of that, what, what might have been here. What we do know is that there were bands. They did put together musicians. They did have mass gatherings One of the mass gatherings every year was the West Virginia Day Picnic. And at one point in time during the 1940s, 1950s, they would attract some years 30,000 people to the West Virginia Day Picnic. There were more West Virginians at that picnic than there were in West Virginia (laughs) And so some years they actually heard speeches from the governor of West Virginia, 
who would come to Akron along with other candidates for public office in West Virginia really? to speak to the West Virginia Day picnic in Akron. And that persisted until probably the mid to late 1950s. By 1960, there had been dramatic changes all throughout the community, economically, socially, and uh, things had changed uh, pretty, pretty radically. Today, there are still some remnants of the Appalachian story in the community. But the efforts of, I would say, the third generation, three generations ago of Appalachian people were to make sure that their families didn't appear to be hillbillies, right. is the term that, of course, was used in a very pejorative manner. And so a lot of successful men and women today can look back on their history and know that they had grandparents or great-grandparents who were part of this Appalachian migration, but they've distanced themselves very deliberately from those, those roots and the roots of those music and culture and religion.
Unlucky Penny from Corey Grinder and the Playboy Scouts is our second song from them, taken from their live stream from Akron Recording Company and broadcast from the Roots of American Music Facebook page last month. If you enjoy their songs, uh, be sure to go to the Roots of American Music Facebook page and watch their full performance. It's archived on the uh, Rome page for you to view, as well as all of the other performances from the previous six episodes of this podcast, and they are all worth watching. So stop by, give us a like, and check out those musical performances. Let's get back into our interview with Dave Lieberth about the history of Akron, the rubber industry, and how people from Appalachia migrated from the South to Akron, Ohio. Was Akron a segregated city back in this time period? It's sort of interesting that when we look back to our founding by Yankees from Connecticut in the early 19th century, 1825, Akron was a very progressive city. We, we had brought here men and women who believed in religion. They believed in temperance. They were progressives in that, that they were opposed to slavery and they were very much in favor of public education. So we had these movements that were rooted in this very educated and uh, very progressive population of men and women who led the city in the early part of the 19th century. Anti-slavery movements were very prominent throughout this part of Ohio, from Oberlin on the west Mm -hmm. to really Akron on, on the east. And it led to people like John Brown, Uh, who grew up in the Hudson area, later in Kent, coming to Akron in 1844 and uh, creating a partnership with General Perkins, son Simon Perkins, and traveling this part of the country in Virginia and Pennsylvania and finding African slaves who were on the run, bringing them to the city, concealing them in his home as part of the Underground Railroad. And so we have more than 60 sites just within our county here today that were sites that were documented as being on the Underground Railroad. It's why in 1851, Sojourner Truth was able to attend the First Woman's National Rights Convention and stand and give a speech that today is still called Ain't I a Woman, although she never said those words. Mm-hmm. But the speech is, is well known. It's why the system of public education that we have throughout the United States today was actually founded here in Akron. Really? It was a Yale minister, Reverend Isaac Jennings, who formed a group of of men and women who wanted to be progressive. And at that time, you paid for your child's education directly. You paid the teacher, sometimes in chickens or eggs, but you paid the teacher (laughs) for that education. He wanted a form of public education Uh, The early adherents to this policy were often threatened with um, tar and feathering. Really? You mean you want me to pay for your child's education? That was unheard of. But Reverend Jennings had this idea, and it became known as the Akron School Laws. And the Akron School Laws said that there would be an elected board of education. People would elect this group. They would be empowered to give people plans to raise taxes to build schools, to hire teachers, to develop curriculum. And that system is still in place today all over the United States, but it started in Akron. Really? School board, taxes, building schools through individual citizen effort. And so those were the progressive times. But Akron was, to some extent, what we might call, using a more modern term, a sanctuary city for African slaves. So there was an incident that occurred in 1840 when a barber in Akron, who was a black man, was being threatened with removal under the fugitive slave law. I said Akron 1840, but I really should say 1850, because that's when the fugitive slave law was passed. And so let me advance that 10 years. In 1850, James Worthington was being sought out by two men who arrived in Akron by train and who wanted to remove him, put him back in shackles, and take him back south and turn him back into slavery. That's what the fugitive slave law was all about. It was illegal to help a slave leave his owners, even even in the state of Ohio. And so Akron had this progressive trend. But in 1900, that changed 
when a mob gathered at Akron City Hall in downtown Akron and burned Akron City Hall to the ground after finding that a black man who'd been arrested for the rape of a child had been spirited away to Cleveland under the darkness of night. That man, Louis Peck, eventually would be pardoned by the governor of Ohio for the lack of evidence and the inability to have a free and fair trial. So it did change. And by the 1920s, Akron had, it is said, the largest chapter of the Ku Klux Klan in the country. But the Klan in the 1920s wasn't as concerned about black residents and citizens because they weren't much of a threat to them as they were Catholics and Jews. So they were opposed to what were called the Papists, Mm -hmm. that is the Italians and the Irish, more Mm -hmm. than than African-Americans. Akron had a very small African-American population in 1910 when this large population boom started, only about 600 people. But by 1920, it had grown eightfold to almost 6,000 people that were African-American. Now, today, our population is about 30% African-American or about 60,000 of our 200,000 residents, roughly speaking. Right. But during this time of the rubber industry, as I said before, blacks were given the worst jobs in the rubber plants, the plants, the, the jobs that were the dirtiest, most toxic, hottest, most difficult. They were the custodians and the janitors. And even later during World War II, when some black men had advanced to building tires, which was kind of the the royalty of the rubber industry, were those men who were the tire builders themselves. Okay. We we didn't have many who were African-American. And in fact, there was a sit-down strike at Goodrich when a black tire builder was brought in to work with white men from Appalachia. They sat down on the job and refused to build tires as long as this black man was present. But in other, so many ways, Akron was a segregated city. The cafeterias at Goodrich and Goodyear and Firestone were segregated. Okay. Movie theaters were segregated. There were seven cemeteries in Akron. Only five would accept black burials, and even then they would have special sections for black burials. Black men and women couldn't live where they wanted to. Housing was very much discriminated against blacks right up until the 1960s, when in the Akron Beacon Journal in 1960, you would still find advertisements in the real estate section saying either colored or white. And many people find that difficult to believe that it was in that recent history of ours. Right. But, but it was. And so Akron was indeed a segregated city in so many ways. Swimming pools, bowling alleys, skating rinks were all segregated. But the clubs along a place like Howard Street, those were integrated, correct? Howard Street at the time of the jazz era mm-hmm. uh, was one of the places along Ridge Street and Furnace Street where African-American families could live and shop and have their business district. So if it was integrated, it was, it was progressive white people who wanted to hear jazz right. who would come to the clubs that were by and large populated by black musicians. The conversation I had with Marco, we talked about the demise of Howard Street and urban renewal. Let's maybe dovetail that into talking about the industrial decline of Akron a little bit and then how those neighborhoods were affected by urban renewal. Well, in the 1950s, uh, the geniuses in Washington decided that cities would best be served if everything that was old and deteriorated was torn down Mm -hmm. en masse without much appreciation for what was there already. So Akron had functioning black neighborhoods in the mid-1960s. And by that, I mean the housing may have been poor. I mean, it may have been somewhat dilapidated. But the people who lived there, the network of people who lived there, made it work. They, they cared about each other. Mm-hmm. They operated churches and businesses together. But in Washington, when they created the urban renewal programs, that was irrelevant. They wanted wholesale destruction of neighborhoods to clear land right down to the green acre so that they could build new on it. Mm -hmm. Akron had six urban renewal districts in the 1960s. And in order to build on it, we had to remove 
some 30,000 households. Wow. 80% of which were African-American. Right. And we didn't have new housing for those families to go to. So as a consequence, many black families had to sort of repeat what occurred in the early part of the century, which is living together, uh, multi-generational households. There was a, an excessive compression of families uh, along Worcester Avenue in Akron, for example. And all of that sort of came to the explosive boiling point in 1968 after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. when Akron it also experienced some of the same kind of riots and civil disturbances that were at that time endemic in Los Angeles, New York, Cleveland, uh, Cleveland, right. yeah. uh, to, to name just a few. Now, how does urban renewal tie into the general industrial decline of Akron? Well, they were parallel histories and unrelated, really. Okay. So on one hand, you had urban renewal happening in cities across the country. And on the other hand, we had the development of the radial tire. Now, Akron was always a tough union city beginning in the mid-1930s when John L. Lewis came here to form the United Rubber Workers Union. And Akron had a reputation for being hard uh, on industry. But the, the, the leaders of those companies, who I've spoken to and done interviews with, confirmed that it wasn't so much the wages that they commanded, but it was often the work rules that discouraged them from building new factories here. Uh, they got down to a six-hour day. Right. Uh, they got down to work rules that made it very difficult for managers to function. And then the radial tire came into place. And in order to build radial tires rather than buy a supply tires, they really had to build new factories. The old five- or six-story factories that we had in Akron were just inefficient, would not be productive. Now, a few of the rubber companies resisted the radial. Goodrich went out front first. And pretty soon, the public demanded radial tires. And because of that, all of the companies knew they would have to develop radial tire manufacturing. But Goodyear, for example, decided to do it out west. Mm -hmm. um, Firestone decided to do it down south. And so the city that once made more tires than any place else on earth suddenly was not making tires at all. We lost a 30,000 well-paying rubber manufacturing jobs over a 10-year period from roughly uh, 1965 to roughly 1975. Wow. Now, you mentioned the six-hour workday, which I thought was interesting because somebody else in another one of the interviews had mentioned to me that there were actually people, motivated people, that if you wanted to have a job at two rubber plants, you could work six hours at one and then go and work six hours at the other. Yeah, and, and then there were also uh, men primarily at the time, since, again, we haven't talked about women much, but women were, were relegated to also the lowest jobs in, in the rubber industry until World War II. Mm -hmm. but, but men would often have two businesses. They would have that job in, in the rubber factory, and then they either had another job at another company or they had their own side business. Okay. They were doing plumbing or upholstery or carpentry or construction, or some of them even formed their own businesses, molding small rubber products, for example. Really? So we had, at various stages of, of history, we had as many as 100 different companies involved in the rubber business one way or the other. Wow. We only know the names of the big ones, of course, but there were many smaller companies who made multiple kinds of rubber products, uh, fasteners, uh, uh, widgets of any number of kinds, toys, uh, office and healthcare items, condoms. Uh, during World War II, I like to recall for people that Akron had three factories that made condoms 24 <laughs> hours a day because every World War II serviceman right. was supplied with a condom. Right. By and large, those were made in Akron, Ohio, with these large ceramic fingers being dipped into latex rubber with women, for the most part, rolling those condoms up and then packaging them and then distributing them to the servicemen. As you can tell from Dave's description of Akron, it was a very active town for many decades with men and women doing hard physical labor a lot of times those people, when they get off work, they tend to, to play hard also. And uh, I think Corey Grinder and the Playboy Scouts evoked that 
time period uh, when people might go to the beer joints, the hockey tonks, the dive bars to you know, quench their thirst and, and maybe meet somebody along the way. So this last song kind of wraps it up pretty nice. It's called Honky Tonkin' Beauty Supreme, right here from Corey Grinder and the Playboy Scouts. She got style, she can give it to you. Talk, you talk, but just a look at that kind can do. She got the land, just look at her there. I like to take that little woman with me everywhere. Well, she's such a sassy mama, and it make me think I'm gonna explode. Yeah, she dig trucking music, and she dances to my band. Where she boogie got my heart a sinking in the sand, and is she? Call me up and say she'll be all mine I pinch myself and it's not a dream Well, I'll be making double time across a few state lines Do my honky-talking through the spring state of the rubber industry in Akron today? Unlike cities that compare to us in, in the great industrial Midwest, Youngstown, Toledo, Dayton, even Chicago, and certainly even Cleveland, Akron survived this downturn better than almost any of those other cities. Yeah. The principal reason for that was that Akron had the intellectual property here, and it stayed here. So that even though rubber manufacturing jobs disappeared, along with steel jobs in Cleveland and Youngstown Mm -hmm. and Gary, Indiana, we had the rubber research companies here. And we had the University of Akron and its Institute of Polymer Science. Mm -hmm. And so Goodyear's World Headquarters stayed here and are here today, along with a $100 million tech center that was built by its president, Chuck Pilliard, back in the 1970s. B.F. Goodrich kept its intellectual property here, its research laboratories, right up until recently. Firestone moved its headquarters to Nashville, uh, moved some of its factories to other states and countries, but the Bridgestone-Firestone Technical Center has been rebuilt, and there are a 1,000 people working at Bridgestone today in Akron. And the first new tire factory since World War II is being built right now on Wilbeth Road in Akron, 
because Akron still makes two kinds of tires. It makes the NASCAR tires for the entire NASCAR circuit. Okay. So every NASCAR tire in the country is made at Goodyear and Akron. Really? And on the Indy Open Wheel Racing Circuit, mm -hmm. every tire on the Indy Open Wheel Racing Circuit is made at Firestone in Akron. Interesting. So those tires, which require a high degree of technical proficiency, mm -hmm. uh, are still made here. What do you think the future is for Akron industrially and culturally? And what do you see happening in Akron, say, for the next 10 to 20 years? One of Akron's greatest assets is our size. And by that, I mean... We are a city of almost 200,000 people, but it is one of the largest small towns in the country. There are strong relationships between people in Akron that you don't see in Cleveland, for example. Mm -hmm. Akron is different than Cleveland. It's not the same. And there's, uh, it's, it's, it's much easier to get things done in Akron because chances are the person you're dealing with business-wise is the person who is a parent in your children's PTA, for example. Right. Or it's related to your dentist or your doctor. It might be your pastor. So there are these close relationships that people have. There aren't many people in Akron I can't speak to for a few minutes and find a common find a connection, connection in yeah. some way. So that's one of the things that has defined our success, that closeness, that fact that our size is, is our advantage. But Akron has also been an enormously creative place. We were the home of Saltfield Publishing, publisher of children's books, for example. Okay. They made more children's books here than any place on earth. So there were artists, there were writers. Akron was the home of five Fortune 500 companies. And what that meant was is that we had men and women who traveled the world for Goodyear, Goodrich, Firestone, and General Tire, but who then came back to Akron to make their home. Mm -hmm. So that led to a certain level of sophistication. That means that we have a wonderful symphony orchestra a world-class art museum. We have this culture that has been maintained that allowed us to create a national park. We are a city not next to a national park. We're a city within a national park, really. Mm -hmm. And the Cuyahoga Valley National Park was the seventh most visited national park in the United States in 2019. Wow. Right up there with the Grand Canyon in Yosemite right. and the other well-known national parks. So we have these assets that make it a wonderful place to live and to raise a family. And so as a result of that, the way that talent has changed is that it used to be that if you wanted a job, talent had to go to where the company was located to get the job. But the transition that has occurred since the millennium, since the year 2000, has been that companies now seek out where the talent is. Mm -hmm. And so we have this wonderful pool of talent here who like the old buildings in the city, who like our history, who like the music culture that we have that is uncharacteristically rich, mm -hmm. as you've pointed out in your series. You know, jazz music here has a great tradition going back to the 30s. We have one of the finest jazz music education programs in the country at the University of Akron that was founded by Roland Paolucci and Jack Schantz, for example. So with all of these amenities we have been able to create a talent pool that companies really want and, and seek out. So we have these new innovative companies like Gojo Industries, the makers of Purell, who are the future to some extent of Akron. And at the Bounce Innovation Hub, we have more than 30 companies who are in the beginnings of startup uh, who are going to bring really high technology to the manufacturing a world uh, through their own creativity and imagination. And they're supported by the city. Okay. So there are great things here that bode well for our future. That's I was going to ask, too, if, if there was initiatives through the city to take those you know, kernels and, and really incubate them, like the technology angle and stuff like that. Is it an active part of the city that those have happened, or have they just kind of happened organically? Well, the city has tried to seek out clusters of uh, technology and industries that can interact with each other and had done so in a very intentional fashion. So, for example, Akron remains a center for the machine tool industry. And machine tooling is called the mother of manufacturing mm -hmm. since tools and dyes 
form the basis for the manufacturing industry. We have a high concentration of that business here and in metalworking, which we've had for a hundred years. Right. We've kept polymer science and all the um, areas around the production and invention and development of new materials. I just noticed last week that a company that had been working with a gecko and trying to find out what makes gecko's feet sticky has developed patents now on that in that field and the new company has just been publicly acquired for millions of dollars just based on that technology, technology. which started in a laboratory at the University of Akron. Wow. One example among many. So, yeah, we we've been able to parlay our history in the rubber industry and material science into a modern cluster of businesses all related to that science. And in my conversation with Marco, he also felt that the availability of water in Akron was also bodes well for the future of Akron. You know, when you look around the country at the problems that are being experienced in the West Coast with forest fires, in the South with hurricanes, with climate change rampant, with water supplies drying up mm-hmm. in Nevada and California, Arizona, and New Mexico. Right. One of our richest assets is the fact that we sit on top of one of the largest concentrations of fresh water in North America. That is the Great Lakes, Lake Erie, and the watershed that accompanies it. And so that's how we started out. Right. You know, we go back, you know, 250 years. It was water that brought people here. And it's water, I think, that is going to keep people here. And we might even see some of those businesses that decided to move to places like Atlanta, Georgia, or Nashville, Tennessee, or um, the West Coast coming back, back to Akron because we got water to to burn, literally. <laughs> um, right. You know, you go to a hotel in Denver or Salt Lake City, you'll find a notice on your bed when you walk into the hotel room saying, please turn off your water, use the towels as many as often as you can. Right. You won't see that in a hotel in Akron <laughs> or Cleveland, yeah. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 7 of the Akron Heritage Music Project. This is the final episode, so if this is the first time you've tuned into the podcast, please go back and listen to the other episodes and tell somebody else you might know about it. We presented a lot of great stories and a lot of great musicians, too. So take a look back, or if you've listened to these before, go back and maybe take another listen or go to the Roots of American Music Facebook page and watch the entire performances that were live-streamed from the Akron Recording Company. I would like to thank the Knight Foundation, and the GAR Foundation for funding this project. It was produced in conjunction with Roots of American Music, and I would like to thank Kevin Richards, Artistic Director, and Executive Director Jason Myers for helping out on this. Justin Tibbs was the Social Media Director for this entire project, thanks to him. The Ernest Tube Recording Crew is myself, Clint Holly, Dave Polster did mastering for all of these episodes, and Mike Fanos did all of the editing for the interviews. A special thanks goes out to the Akron Recording Company for letting us use their location during COVID as a centralized point to present all of these musicians to the general public while a lot of people were not even able to leave their house. So thank you, Akron Recording Company. If these podcasts align with the way you think and you think Roots of American Music is an organization you might want to donate to, please go to our website, www.rootsofamericanmusic.org, and find the Donate button and throw a few dollars into the basket. Well, that about wraps it up. I have been Clint Holly. I hope you enjoyed this season of the Roots of American Music podcast, and we hope to see you somewhere down the line. Thank you so much. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. 
You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.